you can always say, I need to pull my energy back and take care of myself first. Welcome to Breakups, Broken Hearts, and Moving On with Janice Formicella. I'm Janice Formicella, a breakup coach passionate about supporting others to learn from their breakups, overcome loneliness, love being single, and see the end of a relationship as the beginning of a magical, sexy new chapter in life. I am here each week to share with you the tools that I have learned through my own painful breakups through hitting rock bottom more than once, and through working with people all around the world to heal their broken hearts. If you are looking for hope and strength to move on from your breakup and resources to enjoy your new life, you are in the right place and I've got your back. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so glad that you are here. Today, we are talking about love addiction. I think that this is something some people may be able to relate to, and some people may want to learn about so that they can avoid it. I know a lot of people have come out of relationships that they didn't think were very healthy, and also really, really desire to have better relationships in the future. So this episode is for you. And it is especially special (laughs) because I have my friend and colleague Kate Marlena here who has a background with love addiction. And so she's going to tell us about her story and help us talk about love addiction informed by her experience. So hello, welcome back, really. Hi, Janice. Yeah, thanks so much. It's good to see you and do another episode. Yeah, I'm a narrative therapist, which last, I think the last episode I was on, we talked a lot about narrative therapy and how um, understanding stories can help you heal after a breakup. And another thing I learned after going through lots of breakups and a divorce uh, was that I'm a love addict. And this kind of you know, I can go a bit into my story and how I learned this, but for me, it also happened after I found out I was an alcoholic. So they were kind of related for me, but like the, yeah, the, uh, healing process was very different and came at very different times in my life. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to getting more into your story. Can you tell people about your podcast and how they can work with you Before we get into talking about love addiction, what it is, how you can overcome it. Yeah, sure. So I host a podcast called About Face. And this podcast is about authenticity, personal healing, um, self-help in general, specifically through the lens of storytelling. And um, you can find me on Instagram at Kate Restoria. And my website is RestoriaTherapy.com. I live in Berlin, but I work with clients Mm -hmm. all over the world. Amazing. And I will link to everything in the show notes and everyone go and look at about face. I recently did an episode on my story with bad breakups and how I subsequently became a breakup coach. So go check it out. So before we get started, I think that it is really important to talk about what love addiction is. Kate, can you 
give a brief overview of that. I know neither of us are counselors or necessarily experts in this area, but I think it's important to give some context about what what we're talking about here. Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, so love addiction is basically like any other addiction. It's when we become reliant on something, when we use in this case, we're using people, right? We're using love as that source rather than drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or any of these other things that we commonly associate with addiction. Love is when love addiction is when we use love for that same high or when we use another person to change our emotional state. And so that is a very basic explanation. I know that one of the 12 step groups is SLA, which is sex and love addiction. And do you think that the two are, are related? I do. And I think, you know, when you go into SLA, there's just such a range of okay. behavioral addiction. So, you know, it could be, it could be masturbation. It could be casual sex, you know, some of these more extreme behavioral things. But I think on the other end of the spectrum is kind of where I fell, which is love addiction. And yes, so these things are related in the sense they can involve sex and romance in general. Uh, But I think love addiction is a really particular kind of addiction, not necessarily related to sex at all. Okay, thank you so much for saying that. I think some people actually might conflate the two with each other. And with that being said, let's hear your story. I know that this is a big part of how you got to where you are today and also that you want to help others. So can you walk us through? Yeah, so firstly, I got sober from drugs and alcohol eight years ago after my daughter was born. And I could talk over several podcast episodes about that experience, uh, why I got sober and everything. There's a lot of that story on my podcast, but I'm going to focus specifically on the love addiction part. It's related because I was already in the 12-step program. And a lot of us in 12-step, it's like, if you're in one program, you might be in another. If you have addictive tendencies, they tend to, I, I call it, you know, transferring basically where when you get sober from one thing, you might act out with another thing. For example, if you get sober from alcohol, you might act out with food, something like that. So a lot of people who have addictive tendencies, you know, they'll be uh, addicted to many things, right? I was married when I got sober. And so I never would have thought of myself as a love addict or that my romantic relationships were in any way problematic. Because if you think about love, like, and even in our culture, this is something we want. This is something that our parents want for us. This is something that is always promoted as something really positive and good. So how could love be bad? How Mm -hmm. could love uh, do anything negative to us? Right. I would have never questioned it when I, got divorced, I had a bit of a break between uh, leaving my husband and starting to date again. I immediately noticed when I started dating that I was very compulsive with apps. For example, being on them too much, like, and I'm sure you've heard this too, that apps are sort of designed to work like a slot machine. You get this little hit of dopamine when you get a like or a match. And so we're already kind of set up for an addictive relationship with apps. 
which I think is separate from this, but it also plays into it. So firstly, that was something I noticed was I was having a lot of addictive tendencies with the apps. And then when I would get into something, I would become enmeshed really quickly, feel very attached to people like before I before they deserved it, frankly. And before I was able even to negotiate, was this a healthy situation for myself? It was always just like, I want this. I want this feeling of appreciation and love and validation, right? All these things that come when we, whether we're dating or in a romantic relationship, there's a little, there's a high with it, right? So I think the first year it was like, okay, bouncing between relationships, but also like having this really obsessive relationship with men. And so, and it, the problem was it, it wasn't just one person. It didn't even matter who it was in some ways. It was just like, I need a hit. I need a hit. I need to feel someone likes me. Now, the thing is, there's a fine line between all of this, like flirting, having this kind of fun, when it becomes something that you depend on, right? You start relying on that for your sense of self-worth. So basically what happened is I did get into a relationship. It ended sort of unexpectedly, like it came as a shock. And I went into a really, really deep depression. The fact that this relationship affected me so badly with, it was only like, it was a short relationship. It wasn't that serious. And this is something I think your listeners can relate to is like, and you and I have talked about this is like, why is a breakup so hard? Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I talk about it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And they're hard for all of us, for sure. I don't want to say that anybody who suffers pain is a love addict or that anybody who, you know what I mean? Like there's, This is, this is like a very human experience. And frankly, I think that's one of the tricky things with love addiction, which I've suffered with myself is like, how much of this is just normal, right? Normal Mm -hmm. breakup stuff. How much of this is just how we feel after a breakup. So I had some really good friends who were in slaw at the time. And every time I'd complain about how I was feeling, they're like, go to a meeting. You know, I was like, I'm I was like, oh God, I don't want to start another 12-step program. Right. (laughs) Can I ask really quick how long the relationship was? I have a lot of listeners who have been quite devastated over short relationships. So I think it might be useful for people to know this happens to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was only, let's see, four or five months. And we never even really committed explicitly. He -hmm. was a lot younger than me. We, I remember we danced around whether we were like actually even in a relationship, Yeah, but he got close to my kids. It was intimate for sure, but it, but it wasn't like we had a life plan or something. We weren't, you know, it was, I mean, honestly, I don't even think we talked about being exclusive. So it wasn't that serious. And I had just come out of a marriage. So it wasn't like it measured up even in like time or investment or anything like that, but I think that's why what happened with him was, for me, indicative of a problem. I guess that's what I'll put it that way. What I did when I started looking at this stuff was going back through my own history. So him, people I dated, but then like my marriage, all the relationships leading up to it. And there were very clear patterns around how I got involved with people, what that looked like for me, 
I could fall in love really easily. I could meet someone, fall in love in a night, you know, and it was like, I just have these crazy, I fell in love with this hitchhiker I met in Spain and then like (laughs) followed him to Morocco and like one night, you know, I was like, okay, we're in love. Like I would do these things that were very compulsive around Yeah, that is. (laughs) Yeah. But also like, yeah, it was like kind of dangerous, but also so driven by the emotion of love, right? And the high of finding a person. And again, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I don't know, I just wouldn't have seen it as problematic because I think so many of us in that age range are like, that's what we're moving towards, right? We're moving towards love. And so sometimes like all of the chaos feels normal. So I think... Yeah, I remember I got into a quick relationship with the man who ended up being my abuser. And it was funny because there was love bombing and I was being so irresponsible. But I had so many people around me that were like, when it works, it works. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think I had one person give me any type of warning or say they were concerned or advise me to go slow, nothing. I mean, people were acting like it was this really romantic thing where, I mean, moving that fast and having someone pressure you to go that fast. I mean, that's a not only a red flag, that's definitely a cause for concern when you see someone doing that. And yeah, I moved to Germany within mm-hmm. like three months or something like, yeah. whoa, people were celebrating it. And that's, I mean, that's the difference between love addiction and other kinds of addiction is if mm-hmm. you're acting compulsively with alcohol or something, you know, it's easier to see what the damage is with love. It's like, you don't see the damage until the destructive endpoint, or mm-hmm. even like the personal destruction that comes with this kind of enmeshment. And so I can tell you that like, I identify as a love addict because it's helpful for me to see where relationships, romantic relationships and the obsession with romantic relationships can be harmful. Right. And I think it's just like something to think about if you find yourself in pain a lot over love, if you are somebody who obsesses a lot over a relationship. And, you know, I know you talk about this a lot on your podcast is like people who are ruminating a lot over the end of a relationship. I think it's one thing to go through that one time, you know, or have a pretty serious breakup that you're trying to get over, but to go through that all the time, like that's what I would say maybe is the difference. I was having this kind of high and then crash and then depression and then find someone else to alleviate that pain. Like to me, that's the difference is it's like, that's the difference is there's this pattern of, going through a relationship, getting the high from it, crashing from the relationship, finding a new person or people to fill that void. In SLA, one of the acronyms we use is LAVA. And it it's anytime you're using a person for love, approval, validation, or attention. And so when that's using- really interesting. I think everyone write that down. I think that that's a really good model to use when you're getting into a new relationship. And definitely when you're bouncing from relationship to relationship, yeah, take a look at lava. <laughs> but also when you're in a relationship, because this comes up for me. Uh, so I'm in a new relationship now, and this is still something I have to look out for. Um, if I'm feeling uncomfortable in the relationship, if I feel like I need something, I, I think about this, like, what am I looking for from him? Do I need to feel love today? Do Am I looking for attention? Do I need the approval or validation of this person? And 
the bigger question is like, how can I give that to myself? So I just, just really quick, because you mentioned to look when you're inside of a relationship as well. And so I thought it would be good really quickly to mention that love addiction and codependence are different, but they do have some overlap. I have a little experience with codependence, and that is definitely within relationships, whether it be your family members or your husband or your romantic partner. When you are going out of your way to please them, to do things for them in order to receive their love, attention, validation. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that there can be some overlap, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily have this compulsion to, to seek it out. You have a compulsion for the people in your life to love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do well, think it's I- interesting once you get into a relationship to, to look at the lava and what's driving you to try and please this person, make them happy, do things for them, caretake, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe because I also identify as codependent. And I would say maybe the difference between the two is like the love addiction has to do with the compulsiveness around acting out where codependency, yes, can arise within a relationship or within families and things like this. But I think they're definitely related. Someone who's codependent could also be a love addict. And someone who's a love addict is probably (laughs) codependent. Right. I have experience because (laughs) I I don't think I'm overall codependent, but I was in a codependent relationship because I was dating an alcoholic. And seriously, I would have done anything for him just to I don't know, make him happy and, and help him. And when we would have the highs and lows, that high was really fun. But let's go on to the traits of love addiction. Yeah. So what I wanted to say was all of this is really stemming from a sense of self-worth. And I think that's the difference between a healthy breakup pain and maybe a more unhealthy love addicted kind of pain after a breakup, because there's, you know, we're all going to feel pain and loss and grief. We're not all going to attach it to low self-esteem, a deep sense of shame or unworthiness. Kate, thank you so much for sharing your story. I appreciate so much that, you know, I suppose that's a, making yourself a bit vulnerable. And I also think that it will help a lot of people. Kate has a resource that she has used that lists some traits of love addiction. I did a bit of research in preparation for this episode. Kate has personal experience plus lots of uh, resources and knowledge from her 12-step group. And I think it's important to know the traits so that you can look for them and see and decide if you see these things in yourself. So Kate, would you like to read from the list? Yeah, sure. So these are all of these things are things I can relate to. Um, Mm -hmm. An overwhelming fear of being alone obsessive thoughts regarding a relationship, excessive need for contact with your partner. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, Negative emotions when you're away from your partner, a lack of self-identity outside of your relationship, feelings of worthlessness when you're not in a relationship, and losing your interest in work, activity, and friendships Uh because of a relationship, and when you're attracted to emotionally unavailable people. 
Wow. So can anyone listening relate to that? That's a great list. And I think I'm going to list that. And I think that I will list that in the show notes as well. When it comes to the causes of this, it is quite, quite complicated. And I also think that really at its core, it could be a little different for everyone. And because we're not counselors or experts and we're not here to, as I said, psychoanalyze people, we're not going to go into it too much. But Kate, is there anything that you'd like to say maybe about your cause of falling into these patterns? Sure. I mean, like I said, I started doing a sort of inventory of my own relationship to romance, really. What was interesting is it went back all the way to elementary school. And I remember even when I was in first, second grade, really obsessing over crushes, um, thinking a lot about just love, even as a child, you know, it became very like in the US, you have these on Valentine's Day, you know, all the kids make these little boxes and then you give (laughs) Valentine's. And I remember always thinking like, I remember thinking on Valentine's Day, always looking forward to it because sometimes boys would write like, you're cute or something. Even this is when I was little, but I was like obsessed with it because that it's like validation, right? It's getting a sense of approval from, from actually, it was important to me that it was boys, not just anyone, you know, it was looking for like male attention and male approval. We could talk about my relationship with my father, which I would say was strained and complicated. And I think, you know, other root causes could also be trauma. You know, there's also relationship to attachment theory. And I think for me, you know, like, like I said, with any addiction, it's really hard to know exactly the causes, but usually we can trace back some, some things in our lives that might have contributed to, again, for me, there was a deep sense of unworthiness, a deep sense of shame, a deep sense of not belonging. I would also relate my alcoholism to this, but with the love addiction, it was still just like wanting to be accepted in the world, you know, wanting to be loved and, and approved of, right? Again, that's pretty vulnerable stuff. So I appreciate you sharing that with the audience. Some people may think it's love and maybe it's not that harmful. We all need love. And I thought it would be really helpful to talk about the impacts and the destructive nature that this can have on your life. First of all, I talk about a lot on this show how withdraw from a person is very similar to withdraw from a substance. And I, again, got this from a really great Psych Central article. And it says, a 2016 study, for instance, compared brain scans of people with drug addictions and people who identified as having love addictions and found that both addictions similarly engaged regions of the brain's reward system, specifically dopamine-rich reasons. So if you don't think that this could be highly destructive, remind yourself of that. And as with any addiction, I think, I don't want to say especially, but I think really love addiction would apply to this. You can have difficulty holding a job. I mean, think about it. If you need constant contact with your partner, that's going to get in the way of of your career and in the way of your job performance. 
This one was interesting. Participate in stalking or cyber stalking. That's not very healthy. You know, what's funny is I just read that. I'm like, Ooh, that sounds creepy. And then I'm like, I definitely, and I'm, I'm saying this in like looking at your ex's Instagram or, you know, look, you know, obsessively yeah. checking out your partner's social media, things like that. It's a really unhealthy behavior, actually. It, it definitely is. And again, would maybe get in the way of your sleep, of your work performance. You distance yourself from friends and family. I can see that. You experience panic attacks. I haven't experienced anything like this, to be honest, but I could see that if you can't get in touch with your partner, that you could get extremely anxious and really spin out of control. And just to add to that, um, this distancing self from friends or family, one of the consequences for me was actually, it became really clear to me that I was hyper distracted thinking about men when I was with my kids. So I have a shared custody schedule. And I noticed myself, even when I was like at the park with my kids, I would be texting somebody on Tinder or like, you know, wondering why someone didn't write me back. And honestly, when I look back at those times, it's very sad for me and like pretty cringy because I'm like, oh my, I couldn't even be present with my kids because I was so love obsessed. I've had clients tell me that and looking back that they regret it, but also so happy that they overcame it and you can overcome it as well, listeners. And think about this, you're going to lose interests and hobbies and other activities. I mean, that even happens in healthy relationships. So imagine if you're in this type of obsessive cycle with someone. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any other consequences or impacts that love addiction had on your life? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say when you're in love addiction, it actually makes it hard and almost impossible to find real love. Because when you're looking for a hit, when a person becomes a high, you're not actually creating intimacy with them. You're getting a high. And one again, when I look back at my patterns, I basically had a three to five month period of time where I would fall in love with a person, become really attached. And then when that high wore off, I would end the relationship because I would start getting bored or I would think this isn't, this isn't love because where is that chemistry? Where's the fireworks? I'm not in love anymore because I don't have that rush, this dopamine, right? It's just gone. But then I would break. I mean, I, I had this pattern of like getting a boyfriend every fall and breaking up with them before March, because that was just like the amount of time basically it took for the high to wear off. And when I look back, I wouldn't have ever identified this, but it was like, I didn't know how to relate to a person outside of the high. It was Mm -hmm. like, if I wasn't getting the hit anymore, I didn't know where is the intimacy? What is intimacy? I'm kind of curious. Did you ever have any partners bring this to your attention or anyone in your life? No, I didn't. (laughs) I think, I mean, truthfully, like if I'm honest, I was drinking a lot and, you know, back then. So this was also related probably to alcohol and like, you know, just the chaos of that. But I think for me, there even there was a separate pattern with men that was happening before even I got married. And I, like I said, it wasn't until I got sober that I could see, like, in some ways, I actually think love addiction is my primary addiction and the alcoholism kind of a band aid for my love addiction. So what I mean by that is, 
if I was super in pain from a man or feeling obsessed or having anxiety, depression, when I was suffering negative emotions because of romance, I would self-medicate with alcohol. And that for makes me, sense. it was a real cycle. Yeah. And um, yeah. it wasn't until I got sober where I was like, oh, that was kind of how I treated this, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Wow. Like I said, yeah, I I could definitely see this. Oh, the other, the other thing I wanted to say is that a lot of people, you know, if you think about love addiction, it can be easy to dismiss as like not that harmful. And to be fair, you're not drinking and driving and like, there's not these like really direct consequences and, and sense of danger, but people have committed suicide over love mm-hmm. addiction and the pain of withdrawal. And I, I want, I say that because it is, it can be a very dangerous cycle. You know, you see people who have spent their whole lives in this addiction and they're trying to come out of it when they're 70, you know, and it's, it's a very hard life because not only are you chasing, but you never really get that true sense of intimacy that you're really looking for. And everybody has access to healthy relationships. And I think, yeah, life is too short. So anyone listening who thinks they might be struggling with this, you can overcome it. And in fact, I have a a list of ways that you can overcome it and recover and come out more securely attached than you ever thought you could. First of all, of course, seeing a counselor That can be so useful, having someone to talk to about it, maybe have someone to help you get to the root cause of it. I highly suggest that. Just to add that too, like people, there are lots of therapists who specialize in this now. Oh, yeah. And if you fall on the spectrum of, I don't want to dismiss sex addiction either as like something totally separate, because I think sometimes the high of sex is also related to the romance. And so if you're someone who feels like you're seeking partners compulsively, not necessarily sexually, but if you're seeking partners romantically, you can look up a love addiction counselor in your area. And you might find someone where you are that actually treats this specifically. Yes, certainly. And also, perhaps if not, some people live in small areas, there's online counseling as well. I, yes, highly recommend that. Of course, there are 12-step programs, which also meet online, if you think that this isn't in your area. CODA is something that I went to when I left my abuser. That's a good one. And also, SLA is very highly recommended. Kate is going to talk a little bit about the 12-step program in a minute. But you were really glad to have found that, right? I go to a lot of meetings in the US and there's really great ones in LA and New York and they're going on all day, every day. So you'll be able to find one. And there's also gender specific meetings where you can join and feel comfortable where you're at. Yes, I went to a women's only CODA group when I was actually living in Arizona, and it was actually really beautiful. Women from all ages and backgrounds and different codependent patterns with different people. There were some who had codependence with their kids, a lot of uh, women who were newly divorced, some people coming from abuse like me. And there was such beautiful energy in the room each time. So yeah, find a group that works for you. Another way to recover is acceptance. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is a big part of recovering from any breakup or any relationship, really. But you've got to accept that the relationship was unhealthy. Accept your role in it. Accept that you have patterns that are important to change. I mean, I guess if you can't do that, there's nothing really that you can do. <laughs> Sorry, to add to that, I feel like um, when, when you're coming out of a breakup, Janice talks about this a lot, like what can you do to empower yourself? And if you hear anything that resonates related to love addiction, you know, it's something that you can do for yourself is look at it, see where maybe you might have either addictive or obsessive compulsive behaviors around romance. And you can treat that part of yourself. You can heal that part of yourself so that when you get into a new relationship, you're really ready for it. Yes. I am sitting here shaking my or nodding my head so much it might fall off. (laughs) (laughs) Another way to recover, and this is hard for people, but taking a break from relationships. I mean, just put it on the back burner, remove it as a priority from your life. Seriously focus on you, focus on learning about relationships. I wouldn't relate as a love addict at all, but I did take a very long break from relationships a few years back just because I didn't think I was good at them. I always had whirlwind relationships that blew up in my face and I decided that that was something I didn't want in my life anymore. So I took a break and when I came back, it's been really great. I have people in my life right now who I am just so thrilled, high quality people. I've attracted such better relationships since then. I know, I know, like I said, that it seems hard, but you can do it. And it might be the best time of your life. Being single is great. I have to say. Yes. And also to add to that, I think that this is a good test. Actually, if you are wondering if you're a love addict, try not dating and try not being on the apps, not what we call intriguing, which is like flirting, looking for a new partner. Like if you can turn that part of you off, If it feels easy for you, then you're probably not a love addict. If it feels really hard to stop chasing relationships, to get off the apps, to stop intriguing and looking for romantic partners, this might be a, a, a signal for you that you might have some qualities of love addiction. I love that. That's really great advice. Another way to recover, really think deeply about what causes you to slip into these patterns and creating the love map that Kate referred to earlier as far as looking at your past relationships and what you were doing before, what you liked about the relationship, what you didn't like, what caused it to end. You might be able to really identify what it is that triggers you to go into these unhealthy cycles. This is important right now because a lot of people are very interested in attachment theory and consider their attachment to be part of their identity. And I want to assure everybody that your attachment style is not encoded in you. It is possible to become securely attached does take some work. It takes a lot of personal reflection. It takes a lot of consciousness, but it's possible for anyone. And, you know, I can say I definitely consider myself to be securely attached, but it wasn't always this way. Yeah. And I think to 
to heal your attachment style also requires you to heal your relationship with yourself, right? You are prob if you are anxiously attached, it might possibly, and I would say most likely is related to your relationship with yourself. How do you feel about yourself without a partner? Can you self-soothe? Can you give yourself this love, approval, validation, and attention? Mm -hmm. I One thing I noticed with my past relationships is like, I would do something and then always want them to give me approval. So whether it was learning guitar, like painting or... Oh, wow whatever. Like I would do, but this is my daddy issues for sure. It's okay. like, I just want someone to tell me I'm good. I just want someone to notice me and pay attention to me. Right. This is a crazy thing to learn about yourself, you know, in your late thirties and then looking the back and going, wow, like I was always looking for this kind of approval. Right. And this part of becoming securely attached is also related to how secure is your relationship with yourself? If it's tenuous, unstable, it's most likely going to transfer to your romantic partner. Yes, completely. And that's really why I, I, think I wasn't good at relationships way back then because my life was always full of chaos. And yeah, that transferred into my relationships a hundred percent. I want to share some resources. And then I thought it would be cool for Kate to talk about the 12 step approach. First of all, because we're talking about um, attachment style, people may have heard me mention this book before, but Polysecure by Jessica Fern is my go-to resource for attachment style. Regardless of being non-monogamous or not, her focus is on how you can move from either anxious or avoidant to secure. I think her approach is amazing. I highly, highly, highly suggest that book. Another one is Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. That's a really great book, I think. It's for such a classic. Any, so yeah, yeah, too. for sure. I've actually read this a couple times. And then <sighs> she has some additional resources. I use this for my clients. It's a codependent no more workbook that has all these exercises and things that you can do to learn more about yourself. It's really cool. And then she has a book of daily meditations <laughs> called The Language of Letting Go. This is really great, not just for codependence and love addiction, but also people pleasing. Th mm -hmm. This I really, really suggest this book. And this is a little maybe tangential to this, but um, recovering from emotionally immature parents is also something I suggest if you think that your family of origin might have contributed to these patterns or your daddy issues. Um, <laughs> and if you consider your parents to have not been emotionally there for you, I, I think that that's a great book. I second that. I really loved that book. It's funny. I only found it this year and oh, I started reading it yeah, and it was just like, hit me in the face. You know, it's, it's a really great book because it takes things that seem very innocuous and you're, and it makes you realize like, ah, this was like pretty dysfunctional and yeah, yeah. the emotionally immature parent, like they might not have been abusive. They might not have even like, my father was like a great provider. And so it was really hard for me to reconcile the emotional unavailability with his ability to provide for me and really his deep desire to provide for me. Um, he was a loving man. He just was very disconnected. And so reading that book was really helpful for me. Yeah. 
Great. I'm so, I'm so glad. The other one I would recommend is Pia Melody's book, Facing Love Addiction, which is a really great articulation of what love addiction is and a really good starting point. Wonderful. Everyone, I'm going to link to all of these resources in the show notes. Please pick one. This is the time to learn about yourself, to self-reflect, and to figure out how to do better. Kate, I know that you've gained a lot from the 12-step approach, which I think is so great, and I'm so happy for you to have found that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the 12-step approach means, what it's like, and maybe what it did for you? Sure. Just to start, I would say I really avoided 12-step most of my mm-hmm. adult life because I thought it was very religious. I had a lot of negative sort of impressions of what what 12-step was. I have to say getting into first AA and then now slots, like it's just such a great resource. It's a community. It's sort of like a step-by-step of not just how to conquer an addiction, but kind of how to live your life. It, it just has really great tools for relationships, for self-love, self-healing. Okay. So I won't go through all the 12 steps, but I would say, you know, basically you work with a sponsor, you have to sort of um, admit powerlessness, right? Admit that you need help. And I think for a lot of people, that's really hard, whether it's drugs and alcohol or even love addiction, no one likes to characterize themselves as an addict or alcoholic. Or for me, it was like, you don't want something to be wrong with you. But I would also say that admitting where you can heal is going to be the first step you have to take to, to get help and heal, right? So I think, I mean, with with all of the 12-step programs, you just can drop into a meeting and listen. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to come out and say you have an addiction. You can really just listen to the stories. And I feel like the stories of addiction and recovery speak for themselves. You can learn so much. And there's just so much wisdom in the rooms of 12 step that like you and I tried to look something up on the internet. And I was like, oh, I can't even find it because this is just something someone said. People share so much wisdom in 12 steps. I agree. I have limited experience with them, but it did a lot for me. And also I wanted to mention you don't necessarily even have to go through the steps. A lot of people commit to that. You can go to to meetings and get the benefit from hearing people's stories and telling your own. Yeah. I mean, like with anything, it helps to do the work. I think the work in AA or uh, any 12 step, sorry, I yeah. think is very clear cut, which makes mm-hmm. it helpful. And it's free. Um, yeah. You have just so many people who are there for you, like a whole community of people who will help you for free, which is pretty amazing. Even if you don't want to go the 12 step route, because I, I recommend it because I think the there's just so much research done by people in the community that, right. that they know what, what works. Um, but even if you don't want to go that route, like you can still look into these other resources around love addiction or any other kind of addiction. I just recommend 12 step because it's a built-in roadmap for how to recover. Uh, Yeah, I agree. And also if you really, really want to do quote the work to put this behind you for good. Yes. I think the 12 steps would be would be wonderful. But start with going to some meetings, see what you think, and you can make that decision later. Another way that you can start to recover and get yourself motivated is one of my favorite resources. And those are 
affirmations. I scanned the internet looking for some affirmations that may be useful for love addiction. And Kate and I are just going to share five of them. I will start. Number one, I take care of myself. I define and enforce healthy boundaries. I am in touch with what is going on right now, including how I feel about it. I accept 100% responsibility for my own happiness, security, and other needs, which means I also know how to ask for support. That's awesome. And last, I recognize and celebrate my strengths while remaining humble about my weaknesses. That's an important part of the the 12-step process is accepting that you have this issue, accepting that you have these patterns. I think also like accepting life on life's terms. And like, you always talk about that with breakups is like accepting the breakup, but in uh, the 12 step too, it's like accepting what we cannot change. Right. That's so important in, in any relationship, but especially in romantic relationships where there can be power struggles and there's, you know, just so much potential for loss. I was talking with a friend yesterday about boundaries and I was like, it's so interesting because I'm really good at setting boundaries with my friends and it's, I'm really good at sensing in a friendship when something is inappropriate or off. And I can say that, right? And I was like, why is it so hard with romantic relationships to have the same confidence, right? And the same ability to set healthy boundaries. And yeah, I think that romance and love like really gets to the core of some of these issues, right? That we are struggling with, like to me more than any other conflict or addiction or anything. It's like love is so, it's just so core. That's so interesting because I've done a lot of work on myself and learning how to be in relationships. And my issue is the exact opposite. Mm. I can use my voice with my partner or when I'm dating someone fairly easily, but with my friends, I find this so difficult. If I have my boundaries violated, I kind of find that I just kind of distance myself from the person rather than approach them about it. It's Mm -hmm. it's hard for me. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Something I haven't practiced, I suppose, as much as I have with men. That's interesting. Well, I also wonder if because you've done a lot of work in that area of like romance, you are more sensitive to someone crossing your boundaries where maybe with friends, you are more still in people pleasing mode where with men, you're maybe a little more heightened. What's the danger of someone crossing your boundary maybe Mm. feels more pressing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it completely does. Hmm. And like I said, everyone, you can definitely get there. When I was living in Australia and when I was with this abusive man, I did not know how to speak my needs. Someone would do something I didn't like and I would just let the resentment grow rather than speak up. And now, no way. (laughs) It's like really good work in codependency, right? Like you said, learning, you know, codependency is this people pleasing at all costs, really making ourselves small so that we still receive that love. And one thing I've learned through all this is like learning to disappoint someone, whether that is by calling them out or by not doing something, but like being able to say no and being able to accept the other person's response, right? 
Cause it used to be like, I would do something and then I'd get a response and be like, no, 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 you can't be mad at me. You know, you can't be mad at me for what I just said no to, but actually they could. And that's, you know what I mean? That's where the acceptance comes in is like, you can set a boundary. And then that person is also free to have a reaction, but that's where we get to move through acceptance and say, okay, well, I've, I've protected myself. I've said what I need to say, and I'm not going to try to control how the other person responds to that. And I'm glad that you mentioned boundaries because I wanted to talk about how to find intimacy that you deserve. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was learning how to set boundaries. And this is a process that's probably a little different for everyone. I think in most cases, if not all, it does start with practicing But also, well, it probably mostly starts with learning what your boundaries are. I work with my clients on this, probably every single one of my clients, when they say that they may want to start dating again. We have this whole process of learning about needs, wants, and desires, boundaries, what you're looking for, what type of partner you want to be. And when it comes to writing down boundaries, people get really stuck. And I almost always will tell someone, let's try and hold off on dating. If you don't know what your boundaries are, how are you going to recognize what the red flags are? How are you going to know if you want to move forward or not? How does that look for someone who's not even in a relationship yet. I think that you can identify your boundaries, whether or not you're in a relationship. I would say, look back at your previous relationships and look at what you might've considered a boundary violation. I mean, Mm -hmm. for instance, what you just mentioned as time, you might have a boundary around someone pressuring you to spend more time with them than you want. You may have a boundary around how someone wants to spend time. You may have a boundary around how much a person wants to text. You may have a boundary around how someone speaks to you. One of my Mm -hmm. definite boundaries is if someone loses their temper easily, if someone lets something fester rather than talk about it. And if someone tells me to shut up, which hasn't happened in a while, I would consider that to definitely be a a boundary. And also when you say that something is a boundary or you say that you like or dislike something and the person does it anyway, I would consider that to be a boundary violation. And I think you're right. It's so important to think of that even before you go into a relationship, because if you are the type of people pleaser or, you know, you get enmeshed with someone really quick, you can very easily lose sight of your boundaries and almost like go ignorant on what they even are because you are just so quick to respond to what what the other person needs, not what you need. Totally. Another boundary just came up for me is if I date someone with children, I want a lot of time getting to know the person I'm dating before I have really any even contact with the child. I don't want to build a relationship with a child unless I know that my relationship with the parent is really firm and going to be long-term. And I will say, I am very clear on that (laughs) when I start dating someone new, explicitly clear. This is something (laughs) I know I want. And in my last relationship, this got violated time and time again. And this got brought up even within the first few months of him wanting this. And it 
definitely caused a lot of problems and probably ultimately was one of the reasons we we broke up. So that could be someone's boundary. That's just me. No, it makes sense. Yeah, I think just knowing yourself, right? Knowing what your needs are, what what is clear for you and what isn't. And, you know, for the partner, they don't necessarily know your boundaries, right? They don't know when they're crossing one. So it really is up to you to know what they are and communicate that. Yep. And that is something that's probably really hard for someone who has love addiction. So you need to, yes, learn how to do it. Another tip for finding intimacy is go slow in new relationships. You've got to figure out if this is the right person for you. And especially if you're recovering from love addiction, where you are chasing the high, learning to throttle back and learn about the person and learn about yourself and learn about how the two of you are meshing together is probably one of the best things that you can do. I always questioned these hard and fast rules, like don't have sex until this many dates or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want rules. I remember thinking like, I don't want rules for myself for this, Mm -hmm. but it did make sense to me that waiting to have physical intimacy with somebody was a way to protect myself from the emotional attachment that came with intimacy, but also the high that comes with, with sex. Right. And in the relationship that I'm in now, we actually agreed to wait for 13 dates. Um, <laughs> oh, 13 yeah, it was, days. It was crazy. How interesting. Um, I've never done that before. And the, the reason it happened was like, I, he wanted to wait, which I totally appreciated. He was like, I, you know, sex is really important to me. Like it's like, I really want to get to know you. I'm like, perfect. I didn't tell him about my, (laughs) my love addiction, but I was like, yeah, this is a great plan. And then one night I was like, yeah, I read somewhere that, you know, you're supposed to wait like 11 dates. And he was like, perfect. We can do that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, can we like, it was, <laughs> it's a challenge. And then we wanted to get tested before we slept together. And so it ended up being 13 dates. And I have to say that was an experiment because we had to like plan dates where we went out. Like we couldn't just be sitting around the apartment. It was like, yes. okay, we got to stay busy. Right. And um, it just created a lot of time and space for us to get to know each other, to kind of like calm down in between dates. And to be honest, it was really hard. But I would also say that it created a really safe space, too, because we weren't just already together. That's really cool. I might even I could consider even doing an episode on that. And this ties in pretty directly to focusing on compatibility first and chemistry kind of second. And I love how in 13 dates you probably figured out a lot about your compatibility. I'm sure you knew you had the chemistry, but you found this out first before you added sex and hormones into the equation. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, just can you sit and talk to the person? Like, do you want to spend time with them? Do you have enough in common that you can plan, you know, plan to spend time together without that? And I think that's the other tricky thing is when you are first into a new relationship, the chemistry is going to be really high. Like if you like each other, there's going to be that chemistry right from the beginning. And so if you're somebody who is prone to addiction or having this 
a relationship with the dopamine, like that is a very dangerous scenario. If that's something you throw into it right away. And to be honest, like I still, this relationship is now only, it's only three months in and I have to kind of walk myself back a bit still where I'm like, okay, that's still new. Like it's still new. And I noticed this. Yeah. One of your tips is like, don't write a story about the relationship too soon. And Mm -hmm. that's something I still have to be careful of is, am I planning too far ahead? Am I imposing just romance on him? That's another thing that comes up in love addiction is uh, what we call fantasy. You know, do you have a real active fantasy around a person that's not really based in reality? Yeah, I love it. And that's also one of my first date tips as well. Even if you think the person's great, don't write a story about what's going to happen for for many reasons, especially because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know this person. It's so hard to do. <laughs> and I just want to like give people a break for that, though, because in our culture, like love stories are so sure. circulated and, and it's not just Hollywood. It's like the family stories like on Facebook, like we hear real life love stories and we want that for ourselves. So not only are we kind of fed love stories as like this very normal thing to, to want and to try to get, but we're also like living that out when we're on a date, we're trying to get our own love story, right? Like, and that's a very normal thing to want. And to be honest, as a love addict, it's hard to take that away from me. It's kind of like, but what is left if I don't get to, you know, create love stories all the time? Um, well, what's left is being able to, I think, live and enjoy the moment. Exactly. It's like you you might lose the story and the romance, but you ha- you get to learn how to have real intimacy, which is much harder. Yes. But worth it, right? I also want to say sometimes when you write a story and become attached to the outcome, this is a little off topic, but I think that you can put out really bad vibes and energy. That's not necessarily very attractive. Mm. So just think of that. What do you mean like that. that you're kind of, um, that someone can sense that you're projecting onto them? Yes. And I hate to use this word, but desperation is not a good quality. And I think that that can come out or transpire when you are really attached to the outcome. How would you advise someone to stop doing that though? Like, cause I think for myself, even in my new relationship, it's like, it's like, how do you not get excited? How do you not project? And what does it look like to stay in the moment? I, yeah, I have a couple tips. First of all, I think three months in you, I mean, of course you would be excited. And I think there's a huge difference between being excited about someone new and perhaps, you know, making a ton of future plans, especially in, in your own mind. And also thinking really hard about what things are going to look like in the future. For instance, something like moving in together. You know, if you were thinking about that in your mind only three months in, I would say that's being a to a story. And a very practical tip is to not go around telling all of your friends about it. I (laughs) think that that really creates a a narrative around how you think it's going to to work out. And I mean, people are going to be cheering you on. I I would say that's one of my tips. This is kind of an embarrassing story, but... um... I live in Berlin and every winter I go to Canary Islands, just like around the same time. And for the last three years, I've brought three different guys and it was like totally on accident. But I was like, I have this shared photo album with my parents and I'm like, 
oh my God, I was like excited about this guy one year, excited about another guy. And like, I'm leaving next week to go with a new guy. And I'm like, I, I have to say like, it's not like I had fantasy around each person, but I will say like taking this romantic trip with this intention of creating, it's almost like creating more stories and romance and something like, yeah, I think it's just hard to know when it's appropriate or not. Right. Especially if you've had a lot of breakups, you're like, I don't know. What does this mm-hmm. all mean? Yeah, I understand. It, it might be hard yet yeah, to know if you're doing it. I think when you repeat it to your friends, every time you repeat it, you get more and more attached to the outcome. And this is also one of the reasons why I do have this firm boundary around meeting people's children, because I think when you meet someone's children, you are really attaching yourself to what's going to happen happen in the future. And I want to know first if the relationship is viable. And I also think when it comes to not writing a story, you could just use certain language with your new partner. In my last relationship, when we would kind of talk about the future, we would almost always say, if it works out, if we're still together. That's uncomfortable when you're in a new relationship and you're excited about it, but it definitely helped us. Another way to create intimacy or find intimacy, again, know what you want ahead of time. What are you looking for? What are your red flags? What do you need and what do you just want? Do you have things that you would compromise on? I think that's a really great way to enter dating. You can even just write it down. Like, what do you want in your partner? You know, what are your deal breakers. And when you know that ahead of time, you can, it's not like a checklist for a person, but it's like a checklist for yourself, right? It's knowing what you want so that you're not settling and that you're not letting, giving someone a pass for something that really is important to you. So it's like knowing your values, knowing what is important to you so that you can be very clear eyed when you're meeting people. Well, and that does take some work, but it really helps. I've got a few needs that help me to make decisions. And along those lines, one way that you can find intimacy that you deserve is be willing to walk away from a relationship that isn't serving you or where you feel that you are compromising or settling or that you're not happy with, one that you maybe don't foresee a future with. It is hard, of course. I went through a breakup recently. It definitely sucked. Um, But my willingness to walk away from it has ultimately made me so much happier and opened the doors to so many yeah, great people. And I'm yeah, so glad I did it. I, I know that it would be really hard, especially for a love addict to walk away in the beginning. I mean, you said that you had relationships that were at least four or five months long. And I think being willing to walk away a lot earlier, maybe even when you're super excited about meeting someone in the first few dates is going to allow you to allow other possibilities in. Yeah. And like, I never really talked about my recovery because I feel, because we got kind of caught up in like what it is, but I would say having gone through what I would call recovery from this is like, that's one of the things that I take as a sign of recovery for myself is that I know now that when something's not working, 
I pay attention to my body. I know when someone crosses a boundary. I know if something is not working. I do not date unavailable men anymore. I will not date someone who is insecurely attached, whether that's anxious or avoidant. I'm not interested. And it's not like people, you know, people can have these qualities and I can pick up on it, but it's really learning like, what I am willing to put up with and what I know is a healthy thing for me. And it's so true. Like I was able to walk away from so in the last, I started doing this program like three years ago. And I would say a lot of the recovery happened over the last year. And like I said, that was one of the things that I felt was a really good sign of recovery was being able to walk away. And what about the two years in between? What was that like for you? And what did you do differently than you had in the past? Well, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really want to change. I think it was such a hard thing to admit about myself. I didn't know how to date any other way. Um, getting sexually involved too early, future tripping and like looking, Mm -hmm. you know, getting too attached to people too fast. I didn't know how to find love any other way. And I think in a lot of ways it was trial and error and bottoming out. Like I had times again where I was like, how am I back in the same position in this state of like pain and like recovery and most addictions, you hit a bottom, you go, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. And for me, it was like, I'm willing to give up the romance. I'm kind of, I'm willing to give up the high. I'm willing to give up the chasing this using people as like an escape, all that. It's like, I'm done with it because it's actually just too painful. And that's how I felt when I was in Australia and had my last relationship. I was pretty deeply in love with the person. And when it (laughs) blew up in my face, that's what I thought. It is more important to me to stop feeling this and to stop going through this and to stop having the chaos. It's more important to me to do that than to find someone else. And I really was like, I'm just stopping. And yeah, yeah, I learned so much. And it was Oh, so good. I I always say that on this show, but really. And you know what? For me, it was multiple years. And I love connecting with people. I'm very, very social. I am very sexual. <laughs> and it was still one of the best things that I did. Kate, was there a moment where you felt you had reached a level of recovery? Actually, it was when I was able to not date. It was, you know, actually just in the last six months, I took different periods of time off and knowing myself well enough to go, okay, I, I need to step back because I don't like my relationship to this right now. Again, I'm not like any addict. Like I have to continue to work on this. It's not like, oh, I'm just cured. I have to in the past, when I was single, I had to really watch how I was using dating apps. So that meant if I felt like I was using them too much or it was becoming unhealthy, I would turn them off. Learning to, yeah, just uh, if I felt like I was spending too much time worrying about dating or romance, I would just stop doing it. Kind of going through what they call withdrawal, pulling myself, pulling my energy back. And I really like that definition of withdrawal because it doesn't have to be this detoxifying post, how do I say this? Like post bottoming out, you can do a withdrawal at any time. You can do a withdrawal in your relationship. And I do this now where it's like, I did that a couple of weeks ago. I was like, 
feels like we're getting, we're getting almost too close. We're spending too much time together. I felt like I needed to reset some boundaries with my own time. So it's like, okay, I'm going to withdraw my energy to conserve it and protect myself. Even though I'm in a relationship, there's always time or there's always room for that. You can always say, I need to pull my energy back and take care of myself first. That is such a great example. And wow, thank you so much for sharing that. Mm, So good. And last, what advice or message would you want to give to somebody who thinks they may be in the midst of this? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I would just say you're not alone. And it's, it's just such a common experience for us who are very sensitive for us who maybe did have some trouble in our childhood or whatever, you know, whatever causes this. It's like, the thing is it causes so much pain, but there is a way to heal. And to me, if you're listening to this podcast and you feel like you're constantly in a state of pain around romance, take a look at why, why is it becoming such a big part of your life? The same way if you're hungover all the time, there's a reason. Someone might say to you like, hey, you might need help. I would say if you have a lot of pain because of romance, because of romantic relationships, this might be something to look at. And you know, Janice already listed all of the resources, but I would say what's most important is just to think of it as an opportunity to look at this part of yourself and as a way forward. But I would say that like... um, yeah, that you actually won't move forward until you heal this part of yourself. And I think naming it is very powerful. I agree. And if you are in pain over a breakup, of course, you can reach out to me. My information is in the show notes. I work one-on-one with people to beat their breakups, and I would love to support you. Kate also works one-on-one with people. Can you tell us a little bit about narrative therapy? Yeah, sure. So I trained as a narrative therapist and it's basically looking at what what narratives you have that might be holding you back. Also creating new narratives that are more empowering. So for example, if you feel like you're always in bad relationships, you just can't, you know, you can't find the right person. Uh, we would look at what what does that story mean to you? Where does it come from? What is the impact of that story on your life? And are there better ways of looking at things? Are there more empowering ways to look? And it could be a breakup, but it could also be grief or anxiety or relationships, life transitions, any point of hardship in your life. We would look at what stories are arising out of that for you and how can we change your perspective towards empowerment. Thank you so much for everything that you shared today. I'm going to link both of our information in the show notes. Reach out to us. I give free consultations. You can figure out if it's a good fit. And with that, thank you again, Kate. And I'm sending all of you so much strength for the week ahead. Bye. Thank you for listening to Breakups, Broken Hearts, and Moving On with Janice Formicella. I sincerely hope that you found today's episode inspirational or useful. I would love to support you on your healing journey. All you have to do is send me a message on Instagram at breakupspodcast or email me at breakupspodcast at gmail.com and I will be in touch to get you started. 
Remember, if you are struggling with a broken heart, your feelings are temporary. I am sending you so much love and luck for the week ahead. You've got this.